Welcome back, Warriors. Quay Mean Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about their role in indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, this is the podcast for you. And there are so many free ways that you can help support this podcast. You can like it on your favorite podcast app, or you can rate it and give it five stars, hopefully, or share it on your social media. Even teachers can use it in their university or high school classes, for example. On today's podcast, I have an incredible guest who describes himself as a six foot two inch funny guy. But you might also know him if you follow him on his socials. He's the guy who eats Skittles on his spaghetti. So stay tuned. This is going to be an awesome podcast. Welcome back to a new season of the Warrior Life podcast. And it just so happens that it's Mi'kmaq History Month for all you Mi'kmaq listeners and viewers out there. But I actually prefer to call it Mi'kmaq History and Present Day Month because we're still here, actually. And today's guest is someone who is literally perfect for Mi'kmaq History Month history and present month, and not just because he's Mi'kmaq, but he educates the public on all of his social media about Mi'kmaq history, culture, and language on all of his socials, and he also talks about current issues. He's a lawyer, public speaker, a runner, yogi, and he describes himself as a six-foot-two-inch funny guy. And I would add that there has never been a time in my life where I have not seen him with literally a giant smile on his face. Welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast, Jarvis. Well, and thank you so very much for that, Pam. <laughs> yeah, it's not like uh, we were talking before this whole thing started that I have been trying to get him on this podcast for so many different reasons. There's always someone that you want to talk to for maybe they're the champion of language or maybe they're an actor or something, but you're like 10 different things. You're literally 10 different reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast. So I am so excited to get right into it. But before we do, protocol suggests that you I give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and where you're from in the way that you like to. Pam? My name is Jarasku. I am from Huegama Unamagi, roughly translates to the head of the waters, the end of the bay. It's where the Bedora Lakes end on Cape Breton. I went to an Indian day school from 1985 to 1993. So I do tell people I'm a part of that class action lawsuit. And I did subsequently graduate from a Mi'kmaq Gnamwe on reserve school. Did my undergraduate degree at St. Mary's University in soci sociology, criminology. And then I earned a law degree from Dalhousie Law School. And I got called to the bar in 2009. I don't practice law anymore, but I have a non-practicing status. I'm still a member of the bar to this day. So I get all the nice emails on invites. I did practice 
a little bit in, as an Aboriginal human rights legal advisor for a while. And then I worked for a, uh, the provincial government in, as a senior policy analyst and for a couple of years. And one of my highlights with that was being a part of the logistics and plan committee for the Atlantic Truth and Reconciliation Commission event in October 2011. Wow. I got to volunteer very extensively with that. People asked me what I did. I said, you know what? I usually carried a lot of boxes around. And I was like a guide runner for <laughs> yeah. elders and survivors who weren't familiar with the city or weren't familiar with truth and weren't familiar with the layout of the World yeah. Trade Convention Center. So I was like, oh no, Scotia Square is this way. Or if you want tips, I'll walk you there myself. And I always like to say my favorite thing was just like getting caught uh, tea for the gang captain prior to all the engagements there. That, that was my highlight, I would say, with the provincial government. And eventually I got a day job with the Atlantic uh, First Nations Policy Advocacy Secretary Organization here in the Atlantic. Uh, for nine years, I worked in health. Oh, wow. And actually, just last month, I accepted a new position as in economic development. So I've gone from health to economic development. But <laughs> no, the, the actual absolute reality is economic development is such an important thing we need to do in our community. I also like to think that when I was in law school, I remember up the years always tell me with a law degree, you can do anything after law school. Yeah. And I said, you know what? You are right about that. Because I said you went to end policy without a health background or a policy background. And you know, I did that for nine years, my old position, two years with the province. And now going to economic development, I'm like, yeah, come from a sociology, criminology, law background. But you know what? I, I see that as a, it's a new, exciting challenge. So that's like, me with the day job, the quote-unquote professional side of me, more or less, <laughs> side stuff, um, as you were saying, it's Mi'kmaq History and Present Month. I never heard it that way before, and that is <laughs> such a great idea. You no, know, there's things going on to this day that matter, but yeah. at the same time, I like learning pre-contact way of life, pre-contact language, mm -hmm. but it is also still, no, as it's important to remember, there are impacts on us because of colonialism, yep. And not just those impacts, especially the 17 and the 1800s, it's how it spills over into the 1900s and to this day. I'm like, yes, it's nice you got rid of all those racist laws from the 1800s, <laughs> but now we got like the intergenerational trauma to undo because of what happened way back then. And as we know, it's a continuous thing that's going on. And it, without sharing about being on history, culture, etc., it, it's one of those weird things I want to say I spilled into. So in 2016, for fun, I just started doing a daily post in the month of October on social media about random little bits. And then the difference between Mi'kmaq and Mi'kmaq, or how Mi'kmaq is a verb-focused language, our actual historical territories of what they were. And after that month was over, I not did anything on social media too much with that for a couple of years. And... I believe it was, you may remember, after they found the mask, they confirmed the mass graves started in Canloops with 215 bodies of children. And then we saw more, lot, more lot mass graves being confirmed. For me, my perspective, my thoughts were that I'm happy Canada was outraged and angry about that. And of course, it's the usual question, which I want to roll my eyes up at, but I can't, about the whole, how could this happen here? I'm like, yeah. This is normal. <laughs> hearing about racism was normal growing yeah. up. I've been hearing from my own family explaining racism to me, I'm going to say as far back as grade two, grade three. 
And the first time, I want to get back into what I want to say about trivia, but I want to explain about racism first, is how it was explained to me. And I remember I have a, an aunt and an uncle. And it was, I think, 1990. Oh, this was the early 90s. And I remember I was a student at the day school. I remember it was the my eldest aunt, my aunt Joan, she mailed me a globe for my birthday. And I was in a grade two, grade three, I don't remember. And then my uncle, my godfather, my uncle Ken, my get good in. One day, one night actually, at my grandmother's house, he sat me down. He showed me the globe. And he started pointing to countries in Europe and then pointing to various places in North America and then South America. And I don't remember the details, but he said, this country stole land from those people. Those countries stole land from that people, etc. And I'm a child. I'm not understanding. Steal land? I don't get it. But he said, no. And this was his language. This is not my language I would use. He said, this was Indian land. And he said, these white people stole it from us. These white people stole it from them. He was actually breaking down Spain, France. I'm like, I, that's amazing. And... That was the first time I remember really learning of it in a historical sense. And the other first memory I have of us being neglected, ignored, minimized, tossed aside, I think it was 1992, and it was the Canada 125 celebrations. I remember Canada 125 plastered everywhere. Big advertisements, big promotion, big celebration. And again, this was with my Aunt Joan. There was on television a big ad for 125 Canada. And my Aunt Joan, and this, I'm quoting her, and I'm, I'm watching it, and she says, there's not one goddamn Indian on that thing. And I was like shocked, because first off, growing up in a very Catholic home, saying goddamn was like worse than the F word. <laughs> so I knew she was mad. I knew she was mad. <laughs> and then I, I thought to myself when she said, not one goddamn Indian's up there. And I was like, they ignored us. It's great. You're showing all these different people, but I didn't see us up there. And wow. to me, that's like the start of me either experiencing racism or at least my family explaining to me, this is what racism is. It's the, and stealing the land, ignoring us. Of course, we know it's in a multitude of so many different ways. But these were like my earliest experiences as a child learning about racism from my family. The big historical broad sense, but as well as, hey, we're just going to ignore you, not give you a voice or give you a perspective. <laughs> going back to the present. Yeah, so there, there was all this outrage here. And for me, it's I feel like Canada wanted to learn. Even though I was upset, just shocked that this happened. I'm like, no. We know people die at these schools. We know that. I grew up learning about that. We learned about, we read Isabel Knockwood's Out of the Depths in mm. like grade school. Yeah. This wasn't a book I was assigned a seminar class in an upper year level university. This was something I got as a kid in the 1990s. And I'm glad I learned it then because I don't know, maybe my shock and outrage ain't there. I'm like, oh yeah, it's sadly, this is racism's normal. I'm hurt. We're all hurt. But to say this is the worst thing ever happened in Canada, like, no, this was a normal thing that happened in Canada. Yeah. It, it was one school. There's other ones. Yeah. And so I decided, like, you know what? People want to learn. So I want to help them learn. So what I love about my iPhone is notes. 
jot stuff down. I'm obsessed with jotting stuff down and going back to it later. I like to think I have a great memory because I just shared with you crazy stuff yeah. when I was a kid. But <laughs> I like detailed notes. And so everything I did in October 2016, I, which was also a very busy month because I kept researching it in because I needed to come up with a new history every night. So I was up sometimes till 11 o'clock, going through Daniel Pulse, Bruno <laughs> the Savages, or going through Bernie Francis. Need something new. People are... So eventually I got all that there. So Danny Paul and Bernie were incredible sources and just like other stuff I knew on my own. And like, I'm a lawyer, so like I can dig through trees myself. So June 2001, I started sharing more. And I would say around then, the Twitter followers skyrocketed. I eventually hit over 10,000 around time. And I didn't want to talk about that on Twitter, but in my mind, I was like, I'm very giddy and excited. I broke the 10,000 mark. Not verified yet, but let's be mature. Let's not acknowledge the number. And let's just be thankful people are learning and listening. And so I do want to do new research, but at the same time, I find as you gain followers, new ones don't know or learn or may have missed out what you have. Because I have, a lot of us have lots of tweets. I have over 100,000 done. And I don't expect anyone to go back to October 2016 to learn how, you no, know, in yeah. Mi'kmaq, colors are verbs because yeah. no color is permanent. This is orange. I put this outside, over time it fades, leaves change. Colors are actions. And that's wow. the way our language is. A leaf is not going to be green forever. A leaf is going to turn a different color. Hence the way we describe it. It's turning going. It's turning orange or red or yellow or brown eventually because leaves are going to die. And it's the effects of weather. Things are being a constant stage of motion. Like. We're not static, it's in flux there. And so a lot of that I just told you is just stuff Bernie taught me there. So, And after June 2001, I had a friend of mine. She is the sister and sister-in-law of two friends of mine I went to law school with, her Dr. Jill. She's a mother and she has two girls in brownies, cubs, or sparks, one of them. I, I don't know Girl Guides, Boy Scouts, or the ranks or anything. <laughs> but she asked me, could I come speak? To her group. I'm like, I would love to. So me and my wife Carrie, our little shelty Lulu, we went out and I demonstrated what a sweetgrass smudging was and you know uh, how I was taught to pick it. And I gave them very basics of what is Megamogi. Because sometimes in Nova Scotia, and I respect this, but I think sometimes some people get confused and you think Nova Scotia is only Megamogi. I'm like, no, it is more than that. It's PEI Eastern. Northern New Brunswick, Gaspé Peninsula, and Newfoundland since 1860. So I like when you say, welcome to Megamaki. That's great. I would like to see that sign actually at the appropriate spot after the St. John River. I'm like, actually, this is our territory here. It's not this colonial boundary called the province of Nova Scotia. Yes. Our actual boundary yes. is St. John River. So put the welcome to Megamaki sign there. And then on your side, you're going to have to welcome to Willistiquay territory. Yes. And like, then you talk to the holistic way about how they want to do the welcome and maybe have a big tourist stop. Like when you go to PEI on the bridge there, you're yeah. all excited. I'm like, great. Maybe we should have our basket shops on the other side. Reverend say, hey, welcome to our territory. You are now Mi'kmaq culture. Learn something. Same way if when I go to downtown Vancouver, if I drove there, I think it'd be neat to see the actual welcome to a coastal ash territory. Hey, I'm honored as a Mi'kmaq visitor being your land. I'm here to learn. I found after she asked me to speak, I've been more and more very inclined to speak. And you no, know, and I found, especially after June 2001, 
organizations, so many. And yes, Girl Guides, Boy Scouts, daycares, and then some are grade schools, elementary, junior high. And then, of course, you know what I call the adults, people with health regulation, uh, people who are members of health regulatory bodies, oh, geez, what? engineering firms, various departments with provincial governments. It is stuff I love doing. I don't want to say, I do ask sometimes, what do you want me to talk about? I want me to talk about just like our way of life beforehand. Do you want me to talk about truth and reconciliation? Do you want me to talk about peace and friendships? Do you want me to talk about racism? I will get into that. Likewise, I'll talk about birchmark trees. Like, <laughs> what is the focus here? I remember last year, what I was really impressed with, there was this one group of sparks, I think. It was late second or last Wednesday of October. And they were young. So I was used to teach it, speaking to uh, girls around that age. But what I was very impressed was what I mentioned about what do you want orange shirt day means. They actually got into, I'll say, good legal questions about the Indian Residential School and the school up in Shubenacadie. And I was like, you know what? I expect this from adults. I don't expect these good legal questions from, like, young girls. But at the same time, I'm very proud of you for asking these questions. And, like, basically, why would the government let this happen? I'm like, that's such a great question. I got a little boring and talked about the Constitution and federal provincial jurisdiction a little bit. And I, I saw heads nodding and the eyes of curiosity. So I was like, oh, wow, they really are learning. And if what, what I'm saying might sound like a blur, makes no sense, I'm thinking and hoping, at least as they go on in junior high school, university, etc. But my thoughts with speaking to children would be, they get the idea, hey, this was wrong. Maybe this is why health statistics are like this today, or economic development could be a bit more, but why are some places struggling? And maybe they had like more severe history, more severe impacts of colonization. Like we've all uh, experienced it. Maybe some communities, because of the way Indian Affairs didn't want reserves, a lot of major places. Like we all know about the relocation of Member Two there in Sydney, on Sydney River, and Member Two still went on to do well. Like they would, I want people to ask what has happened and of course, what can they do about it? And I'll save more on that for the end there. So yeah, I just speak to a variety of groups and one question comes up and I'm going to be blunt honest. Yeah. Sometimes they ask me about payment and stuff and I say, it's going to depend. So it depends who you are and it depends what I'm talking to you. So yes. through my day job, I do speak to people and they say, mm -hmm. we have a budget. I said, actually, I'm doing this as part of my work. Because this is something I do as yeah. part of my organization, which is also me. I'll speak to you for free, but I also do say, if you want to make a monetary gift, I have two organizations I'll recommend to you. One is being my way to Bird, to Bird site. And the other one, I it's kind of like a selfish plug, is to donate to the Donald Marshall Jr. Memorial Award at the law yes. school. And yeah. I, I will say that I am yeah. very proud to be one who developed, led the development of that. And I'll tell you the story behind it. Junior... Well, he wasn't well prior to his passing, and this goes back to August 2009. And the 20th anniversary of the Royal Commission was coming up, or 25th, I don't remember now. <laughs> 20th, 20th anniversary of the Royal Commission was coming up. And I was speaking with someone at the woman at the bar side, Emma Halpern, and I always said, there always seemed to be this thing, and I say this, and I can say it because I'm a lawyer, there was always this obsession I found when it came to the wrongful conviction the fishery rights case, everybody wants to talk to the politicians, le political leaders, judges, lawyers, everyone. 
It always felt for me, from my perspective, I get emotional here, <laughs> that nobody ever really talked to Junior. And I'm like, Junior, what do you think? How do you feel 20 years later? What have you seen? I know we got these stats, but listen, mm -hmm. you were thrown at Dorchester. You were thrown at Spring Hill. How are you feeling 20 years later? I want to know. I want to hear. What do you, I want know what you have to say. I, I, in all due respect to the lawyers and everyone else, yeah. I want to know what you have to say. Yes. This happened to you. These changes are because of you. Yes. I want to know what are your thoughts. And I was going to work with the Bar Society on doing this massive interview with him. And I knew, unfortunately, because of the rejection organ medication that he was on, unfortunately, his mental health wasn't the greatest. So I wanted to be very respectful, make him feel safe with talking about anything that could trigger anything. Mm -hmm. I, I reached out and I said, listen, this is what I want to do. For the 20th anniversary, I want to hear from him. I don't, I'm, I don't want to hear from the other leaders, all these rich people, all the respect to them. I want to hear from Junior. The world needs to hear from Junior. If he wants to do this, I will drive to member two. I will record. I will run it by him. He can edit as he wishes, or I will edit. You tell him what you want to say. But at the same time, I say, if he doesn't want to talk about it, if it's too much, I say, I absolutely respect that. I will not even try to guilt pressure anything at all. And those closest to him responded back and said, oh, you know what? Junior would love that. He's not well, but Junior would love that. And, and I welled up a bit when he said, Junior's very proud of you. He's just too shy to say that around you. And oh. I, I said, you know what? That's the feeling. Wow. I cannot tell you how extremely mutual the feeling is. And I went to St. John's early August 2009 for a visit with some friends. It was a trip I had booked. And I said, all right, oh, when I get back, I'll get a rental and I'll drive up to member two. And then I'll then my family started reaching out to me on the 5th and they said if you can you might want to get to sydney somehow i don't think junior's got much time left oh. and so i called WestJet. i'm like listen i got someone dying can you get me out of here i'm sorry all the west jets are out of st john's tonight your only flight out is the morning of august 6th oh no so, all right so I got bummed out. So I talked, I called my sister, Sammy Joe. She lives back on the reserve. And I, and I told her, you know what? Feeling sad. I think we're going to lose him. And I don't think we're going to get that chance out. And this was Regatta, Regatta and George Street Fest. You know anything about them? It's a wild time. And I said, listen, I bought myself 12 balls for this today. I don't know what to think or do. And she said, you know what? Junior, we want you to enjoy yourself. Just go ahead. Said, All right. <laughs> and then the next the early morning of August 6th, I, I told my sister, Call me when he goes. I don't care what time it is. Just do. And then it was about, I know there's a 30-minute time difference, so I messed up here. I think it was 2.20 a.m., so it may have been 10 to 3 back here, when she phoned me and said that a junior passed. And then I said, all right, no, thanks for telling me. It's just what I want to know. So fast forward a few days, I make my way up to member two. And then so I approached, I approached three women. And I said, I, so I approached his mother, Auntie Gowan, Auntie Caroline. She was my grandmother's sister. So grown up, we've always uh, heard of Junior's story all the time. It wasn't until I actually got towards the end of undergrad and I entered law school that I understood and appreciated the incredible multitude of the systemic failures as to why Junior ended up in prison. Growing up as a family, everyone in my family always said that goddamn McIntyre. You know, the lead police officer and the whole thing. 
And that, to me, that's what it was. It was, it was one bad cop who, quote unquote, hate Indians. And like I said, no, it wasn't until I was older and no, actually was reading the Royal Commission. Oh no, this whole system was wrong. It wasn't just one bad cop. It was like everything was wrong. So I approached his mother and I said, may I go to the law school and create a memorial award for Junior? All I just need is your permission. I will do all the paperwork. I will harass and bully and bother everyone at the law school. I will do everything. I just want your support and blessings. So Auntie Gotland said yes. And then I asked his widow, Colleen Dorsey, may I do this? I will do all the paperwork. I'll do all the hustle. And I just do it. The biggest thing is I need your permission and support and blessings. She said yes. And then the last person I asked was his best friend, a Dr. Jane McMillan. I said, may I do this? And she said, absolutely. And I said, that's all I need to hear. Yeah. I will deal with the law school in September 2009. And ironically enough, it was on the 10th anniversary of the Marshall decision from the Supreme Court. Wow. I was actually meeting with Michelle Williams at the law school, Professor Michelle Williams, the former director of the Indigenous Black and Megabond Initiative. And I said, I would like to do this for Junior. Yeah. I said, I look at the law school awards. Listen, and I'm fine with all these nice tax awards from Bay Street, all these commercial awards from Wall Street, whatever. That's great. That's great. You have We have nothing here for Indigenous rights. Can we make something? And can we name it after Junior? One yes. of the biggest, most influential Mi'kmaq Indigenous rights champions in Mi'kmaq territory. And I was so happy that Michelle was totally on board with that. We approached Archie Kaiser. We approached the dean. I won't go into the details of it, but there was like a lot of back and forth emails, drafting, redrafting. And I was very happy that we got the award out. And we started awarding it in a spring convocation 2010. At the time, there was no money in it. And I said... Same thing that Archie Kaiser said, it's the principle of the award. And I had this crazy vision that, to me, I want the award one day to have the biggest monetary prize that goes with it. Because to me, that award is just as, if I do put a dollar value on it, to me, that award is just as financially valuable as a Bay Street tax award for Bay Street firm lawyer. I'm just picking on Bay Street here. <laughs> as Junior's award. Okay. Yes. Junior's work can stand right next to yours. And it's Aww. not about him taking your space. It's about sharing a space. It's about space that should have been there in the first yes. place. When the law school was first created, yes. people should have thought, we should do something on indigenous law. Yes. And over 100 years later, we got something going. But yeah, so... And so that's us. Start with that word. And so that's why I, when I do the speaking engagements, I was like, I tell people, if you want to give, there's DeBert. Big, important initiative on yep. our history and culture, or if you want to talk law talk, there's Junior's Award. Yes. Give to that as well, too. And on a personal level, they're both important to me. Who knows? There might be another fund based out of a Butledek First Nation that's important. That's great. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something in Eskidobinich that's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. This is just me asking people yes. to give. I know some have said they'll give to... Oh, geez, I do not remember the name of it off the top of my head. It's one of the Indian Residential School Survivors Associations out in BC. And I say, no, I think that's great. But I always say, if you're thinking regionally, think about here as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, the big thing I say is like, they have their history and their schools and yeah. how their schools affected their people. We have a different thing in the Atlantic. We have one major Indian Residential School right. Settlement Agreement recognized school in Shimanakadi. Yeah. I understood sometime from 2015 afterwards, 
There was an apology for other residential schools in northern centralish Newfoundland for other, mm -hmm. I believe they may have been Mi'kmaq and or as well Inu. And I apologize for not knowing that okay. in detail, yeah. more detail. I should know that. And likewise, by here in the Atlantic in Mi'kmaq, I say, you know what? We had 26 Indian day schools. Yeah. And we had two of the earliest three known Indian day schools in the country, pre-date Confederation. Two of them are Mi'kmaq. Let's wow. And Gescabeg. 1863 and one was 1861. There's one in Ontario that was also 1861. But I said three of the first oldest in Canada, two of them were Mi'kmaq in Mi'kmaq. I didn't Ontario. know that. I actually read, I went through the settlement agreement to read the stats and numbers and dates. What? So, yeah. So the last of the amongst the last round to close, three of them were Mi'kmaq. In 1993, and I apologize for not knowing the Mi'kmaq pronunciation of it, but Eel Ground First Nation schools, mm -hmm. Indian Day School closed. My reserve school closed on October 1st, 1993. Ironically, Treaty Day, so hey, yeah. celebrate. <laughs> and the last Indian Day School to close in Mi'kmaq was, again, ironically enough, the same area of the Shibanaki Indian Residential School. It was a Shibanakitic First Nation. Their Indian Day School closed. Mm, I think it was February 1997. And then what I called, and then what I'll say was the ultimate ironic thing, or lack of a better term, the last Indian day school to close in the entire country was in Kanasawagi, Oka. Wow. Yeah. That's the stuff that people don't know those details. I've been researching. I didn't know that we had the first ones but of course we would look at what yeah. they did to try to get rid of us yeah. the scouting bounties and the relocations yeah. and everything so that that's why i wanted to have you on this show because you just you take the time to get the details down like you think about <laughs> what does the general public know about residential schools oh the last mm -hmm. one closed in 1996 well they're not thinking about Indian schools in their totality. Yes, there's yeah. residential schools, there's Indian day schools, like it's the whole kit and caboodle. And so yeah. it's actually longer than 1996. And so yeah. that's why I love talking to you. I literally learn something new every time. And oh, it's important you. to know. Yeah, thank you. And one of the things I've been pushing in, so when the uh, this past summer I did another interview, I, I think it was Goldberg CPC. I don't remember. One thing I did say was with Indian day schools, with based upon what I've read of the class action settlement, we've had at 100, no, sorry, 699 Indian day schools across the country. Off the top of my head, I don't remember Indian residential schools. The number is lower. In terms of students, the last numbers I saw when I crunched, 150,000 First Nation students for residential schools, 200,000 estimated so far on Indian day schools. More day schools and a lot of those schools closed much later than residential schools. Here in Mi'kma'ki, we had schools closing in the 80s and 90s. Multiple schools. Residential school, I'm, no, we're all glad ours closed here in, in June 1967. But unfortunately, there's a double whammy question. Those, schools, those students who went to those residential schools, when they went back to the communities, all of a sudden, would say, hey, now you go to the Indian Day School. And that's why that's double whammy of abuse going through. And wow. Yeah, so I'm like, all right, that's wow. two types of trauma. Now let's talk about when you grow up, you have children. And what's that trauma being passed on to? 
And it goes back with what I said to start. Yeah, it's great. We got all those racist laws in the 1800s. 1900s, we're still working on it. But listen, we're dealing with the effects of it now. Yes. I'm glad this ain't on paper. One other thing, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I love love telling this to listeners. So the law school, residential school in Nova Scotia, and then, of course, that affected Atlantic First Nations, Mi'kmaq, as well as Willisque, here in the region, was Shubenacti. 1967. I apologize for not knowing the specific numbers, but I believe it was sections 114 to 122 of the Indian Act. Mm. Thank you. Empowered the feds to do all that stuff with the residential schools. In the late 1990s, and I believe this was after the last Indian Day School closed, the province and the feds simultaneously passed the Mi'kmaq Education Act, which basically abdicated any role either of those governments would have with Mi'kmaq education in communities in Nova Scotia, and they create Mi'kmaq Ganamoy out of it, and saying, education is entirely in your hands. We're not going to have a say on it. And I'm not sure what kind of fun creative lawyer got involved in the draft of that legislation, yeah. but I always liked how in that act, they went ahead and said on paper, sections 114 to 122 are inapplicable in Nova Scotia. Fast forward 14, 15 years. Before the TRC's final report came out in 2014, the, the Fed said, we don't have residential schools. However, as a gesture, as an act of reconciliation, we're going to formally actually get rid of these racist laws in the Indian Act with respect to Indian residential schools. So I'm like, okay, on principle, I want that out of your books. And get rid of the Indian Act, we could. But yes, we get rid of that from the books. But now... What I liked is I tell people sections 114 and 122 were inapplicable since the late 1990s with the Mi'kmaq Education Act. So legally speaking, I say the Mi'kmaq were of Nova Scotia were the first to legally outlaw Indian residential schools in this part of Mi'kmaq, in this province. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... I'm like, yeah, and I said you call on Fitz. We had a different government back in 2014. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't like to say his name out loud. I know. I'll, I'll say that part out loud, though. But yeah, so again, that's like me continuing to learn history. So yes. I, initially, I was taught when I, in one of my posts, I think it was, tw- I don't remember what, it was October. Yeah, I think it was October 2021 when I was talking about residential schools and day schools. Someone drew my attention to the act. So I went to, the actual legislation and yes. I actually read through it. And then I just saw that little fun piece, 114 and 122 applicable. Wait a sec. Google search. Yeah. Got to that 2014 press release where the then government at the time said, we're going to formally repeal it as an act of reconciliation. So <laughs> I just put two and two together. I'm like, so we actually got rid of the schools before you did. Just want yes. to put that out there. So yes. I was going to say that's a little fun trivia to share there. So <laughs> That's awesome. See, another reason why I had you here, because you can take a really difficult issue that everyone should know about, mm-hmm. but you find a way to come right back around and say, see why Mi'kmaq are kick-ass? We're, we're doing these amazing things. Yeah. And I just knew you would have that kind of information. Like, I'm literally learning so much, and I'm a Mi'kmaq person. And it just goes yeah. to show when we share our information, mm-hmm. it's not just for the Canadian public. We can't expect every Mi'kmaq person to know everything about Mi'kmaq and our, our history. Yeah. Or so when we share with each other, yeah. that's how we get all this knowledge and empowerment. Wow. <laughs> thank, you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and it's funny you said that because literally a few hours, I wouldn't even say 
driving back to my father-in-law with my wife. And then she asked me a question. And she said, what did Mi'kmaq people think or see or view dunes as? I mean dunes, I go. No, the things on the beach there and all. Oh, sand dunes, yeah. And I just told her, honestly, I don't know. And I said, listen, I know a lot. I said, I like, I love learning language, actual Mi'kmaq culture. I am a lawyer, so, you know, laws, how, how laws affected us, all that. But I said, I don't know everything. And I said, I could not take you into the woods and point out the various medicines that we had. I could probably name three or four, unfortunately. I wish I knew more. Likewise, I know people who know so many. Yeah, so it's like, I, I don't know every single little thing. I'm fortunate I can reach out to Duma Young. If I have a question about medicine, if I have a question about linguistic rules and pronunciations, easily reach out to uh, uh, Bert, Bernie Francis. And sometimes with other language stuff, I have a friend back home, Alexis Gugu. Uh, she's a big about language teacher. I reach out to her as well. So if I don't know everything, we can still learn from each other on that one there. If I don't know something, my, my ignorance, the limit of my knowledge, I, I will say this, ecological knowledge. Uh, yeah. But anything thing, I am, I'm keen, more willing to learn right now. One fun project I am planning to do I don't know if I can get it done in time, but it's for June 2022. So June is Indigenous Ooh. History Month. October yep. is Mi'kmaq History Month. And when I speak to groups, sometimes they may try to introduce me and saying, we have an Indigenous speaker with us. Oh, and I say, yeah. thank you, all due respect, but I'm a Mi'kmaq speaker, <laughs> yes, not an Indigenous speaker. Yes. Because I'm here to talk to you about mainly Mi'kmaq history. I'm not here to talk about Blackfoot history. I cannot talk to you about Cree history. I'm not going to talk to you about the Dene language. I'm not going to talk to you about Kosilash rights. I cannot because I only know my own history. So therefore, I am a Mi'kmaq historian or educator, etc. Sometimes, but ultimately, I don't think I do. Sometimes, I do hate the word indigenous. I don't speak indigenous. I speak Mi'kmaq. I'm like, but the word indigenous is... English term. It's colonial in nature. I do understand it. There are laws, policies that affected First Nations from East to West. I, and we both know that. So sometimes I do understand if they say, hey, Jarvis, can you come to, you know, here and speak to us about Indigenous issues? I'm like, I could, but it's going to have a very Mi'kmaq perspective and focus on it. I cannot give you a Mississauga's new credit perspective on it. Talk to someone in that territory, you know, about that, if you're looking for that particular perspective and history on it. Yes. So what happened, what I want to do is, I, and I know many people have said, we hear it, read the TRC, read the calls to action. And for a couple of years, I've been trying to do research to, because normally I was a paper founded book reader. That's how I am. I love highlights. I see yeah. that from law school. Yeah, yeah. I mark things up. And then I was like, I found a print company that would print the entirety of the TRC. It was about 700. Oh, wow. I, thought it, I thought about it. I said, you know what? I have an iPad. I'm going to download the whole thing. And I said, I'm going to read the entirety of the, of the TRC. And I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to read the whole thing. Yeah. I'm 100 pages in. And I have to <laughs> praise the Honorable Sinclair and yeah, but the commissioners, because just merely reading it is beyond depressing. It yes. is sad and it angers you. And uh. I'm like, I'm just a guy reading this. Imagine if you're the person doing this research, talking to survivors firsthand about 
Yeah, I was a child operating heavy machinery, and now I lost half my forearm. Oh my god! Because I wasn't trained to use this crazy piece of farm yes. equipment that only adults should be touching. Oh. And then and I think to myself, yeah, Justin Clare just sat, had to sit there, listen to that. And I asked myself, what kind of vicarious trauma do they incur yes. talking to survivors firsthand? Like, I found even doing the Atlantic event, as much as beautiful as it was to be there with survivors, it's also hard listening to what they said. So I definitely praise shout out to those who worked so close with survivors and with the TRC, putting it together. And yeah, so I'm reading it. And I'm making highlights as I go through it. That's what I love about the iPad, my Apple pen. Yeah, yeah, I make yeah, highlights. Yeah. And I said, I, one thing I'm thinking about going to try to do is with Indigenous History Month, June, right. I want to see, I, I don't know if Twitter will explode or what, but I'm like, I'm going to take highlights of what I did and see if I can put them in the short tweets. Just yeah. random highlights. From yes. And I'm like, now listen, before anyone accuses me of plagiarism, it's all from the executive report. It's a public domain document. Yes. yes. So go ahead and read it <laughs> if you want more details. It is a very challenging, hard, sad read. It reminded me a lot of reading Michael Harris's Justice Denied, the first book that oh, came yeah, out yeah. about Junior, yeah. which was four or five years before the Royal Commission's final report came out. So if you want to hear Junior's story, that was the book. And obviously it angers you. Same thing re reading all this. I just, just last night, I read about a few more pages and I was reading about burial policies. Yeah. Priests, staff at the school. If they died at the school, they were given tombstones. Their dates carved on it. If kids died at the school, usually a white cross and sometimes save money. Let's put two kids in, in the same grave to save money. Or let's just pile all the kids in the same grave to save money. Sometimes parents would ask, can you please send my child's body back to the reserve so the child can be buried in our community? Indian Affairs want to save money. No, we're not going to. We're just going to bury them in our own grave. And I'm reading all this. And you I, you just want to punch something. No, you want to smash something. You want to scream. And I'm thinking to myself, I cannot imagine what the chair or the commissioners oh my who are drafting all this, the researchers that they had gathering all this, how much that must have hurt them. Because they're rereading this study and then you're like putting it together for the final report. It, it reminds me, in a weird way, it kind of reminds me of what I call crying. Actually, I don't call it crying. It is crying. Yeah, when, yeah. You, when you have a good cry, either something's beautiful, something sad, something pushes you. And then usually I always almost find when you're done crying, you feel better. Yeah. One thing I've heard was like, you know, crying's cleansing for the soul. Reading what I read last night, reading, I, I'm at, I just got a little 101 pages now of the executive summary, and I'm going to read yeah. the other reports as well. Good grief. Yeah. I find myself angry. A couple of times I teared up, but I said, out of that, I'm glad I'm learning this. If somebody doesn't have the time to read it, then I will talk to you about it. Likewise, you want to learn more. I go back and, hey, I took intellectual property law school. I like copyright law. And I said, that's public domain. <laughs> go nuts. Yeah. Go out. Just don't photocopy and charge money for it. You're not allowed. You can't do it. Yeah. No, no, maybe I'm still, I'm probably still a lawyer at heart. Who knows? But so, yeah, so I'm going to see what I can get done in June. It'll write, once it's done, maybe I just might do highlights from the executive summary because there's, as it's different volumes with such incredible detailed work. 
And who knows? Maybe that could be June 2024, 2025, so forth. But I say, no, I'll do my part to get those stories out there to the best of my knowledge there, to the best of my ability. You're doing that. And I'm just, and I'm so thankful because like, I'm not fluent in Mi'kmaq. So I can't talk about, I can recognize words. I can't do the background context, like how it's related to other things, how you can say the word with a different intonation and it means something mm -hmm. totally different. And that that's that's important to know. It's like our way of life, our worldview, what we're thinking. Mm -hmm. And there's so many Residential school survivors, day school mm -hmm. survivors, 60 scoop survivors, mm -hmm. Indian X survivors, like people who were torn away from mm -hmm. their language and culture. And of all the people in this Turtle Island, Mi'kmaq people got it the first, mm. sometimes the hardest, but most mm -hmm. definitely the longest. Like we, it's mm. just been so long. So for anyone who can share mm -hmm. anything about Mi'kmaq language, in the context, like you were mentioning, Bernie Francis, I love him. He helps everyone out of the goodness out of his heart because yes. he loves for his, our nation and the language. I can ask him anything and say, does this make sense? Can I put this in the title? Is this the right way mm -hmm. to use it? And he will just tell you a whole story about yep. one word. I just love him. Yeah, I... I had the extreme privilege in October 2010. I actually got to do a Mi'kmaq language immersion camp with him under his oh, direction. Wow. It was at the Tadmagush Center in northern Nova Scotia. I'm jealous. Yeah, it was uh, It was awesome. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. And for me, and again, I'm not sure if it's the sociology criminologist behind me or the lawyer, but it wasn't so much I want to learn the word. I want to learn the meaning behind the word to break down the rules of use and the word as well, too. And, yeah, and I guess what bugs me right now for me is like I'm excited. I'm very happy I've come along with the TRC about Daniel Paul's book last week. I have another book I'm reading. It's about the rollout of the Indian Act elections in Big Maggi from 1899 to 1950. Again, fascinating read. I guess for me, it's like, you get too busy with other things, you end up neglecting some things. And like, I, I just pre-ordered Candy's book. Very excited to read that. Huge shock, huge loss when, when she passed away last year. I still have her, I still have her birthday card from last year that she sent to me. It's still oh. on my fridge. And just a nice message was, we'll see you in the new year. Yeah. It's, thank you for mentioning her. She's my cousin and... Yeah. Uh, Huge shock for everybody, like our family. But the fact that she got the text of her book out before she passed, which is talking about her journey and our like lived experiences and my mm -hmm. family. It's going to be a history book yeah. as well as it is an autobiography, as well as it is an educational book about lived experience mm -hmm. and it's a contribution to Mi'kma'ki. Just, I think about Danny Paul. We were celebrating Danny Paul and the fourth edition of his book, We Are Not the Savages. And, and I think, I haven't read Candy's book yet, but I have yeah. I have some ideas about what's in it. And those are the things that are priceless. Yeah. That we need to, in all of our research that we do on everything else, like you were just saying, we can't also forget to dedicate time to Mi'kmaq people, Mi'kma'ki our history and our present. And that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're literally doing the big <laughs> picture and me muggy. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I'm not going to dive into detail about it, but on my own website, after Candy passed away, I did publish a piece of just my time and history of meaning from March, 20, 
I think it was 21, 22. I don't remember the day. I have it written down. March 2001. Basically, <laughs> just everything of what I remember about her. I'm not going to go dive into much detail about it, but I think it's a, hopefully it's a fit and tribute. And I'm most certainly looking forward to her book. Like I said, I pre-ordered it mid next week, I think comes out. Hopefully, I'll, I think I'm going to get it on the first day. So excited about that. I think it's and, October 18th, right? October 18th. I think her partner, okay. Denise... Yeah. She sent me a text and said she was pre-sending out books because I think the official launch is October 18th. I could it's be wrong. Month, but yeah, yeah. But history month celebration. Yes, exactly. Yes. And honor her and people yes. like Donald Marshall Jr. and all mm -hmm. the people that we have lost. Yes. I want to shift the conversation over just a little bit when yep. with that last word that she had there about lost. Yeah, so a little bit I want to talk about. Although I love doing cultural stuff, as you're saying, I also love running. Uh, and you know, I, I was very fortunate to have done Boston this past uh, April. And later this month, I'm actually doing the, uh, the Marine Corps Marathon in uh, Arlington. What? And, yes, Arlington and Washington, D.C. There's quite a story behind that one. So this isn't a random marathon I picked. It, I first heard of it, I want to say 2018, 2019. And so it's a lottery system. Some races you qualify for some they don't care, you just apply. And some it's, no, you actually got to do the lottery system. It was funny because I applied March 2020. And then April 1st, 2020, I get accepted into the Marine Corps Marathon. And I like the emails. And they were like, we understand the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll reassess in a few weeks if the marathon will take place. I told my wife, and she's a scientist, and she said, this, not, no, this pandemic's not going to be over in a few weeks. And yeah, she was right. I was able to defer for a while, but the reason I wanted to do it, I had one main reason to do it. Now I have two. The main, the first one was because of my best friend, Corporal Clint Joseph Bernard Phillips, who was from my reserve. We went to the same Indian Day School, graduated from St. Mikamaganamway School. He was a U.S. Marine from 2000 to 2004. And yeah, he was a part of Iraq and Afghanistan there. Came back to the reserve and PTSD being what it is, he took his own life in late September, September 2006. I was in second year law school at the time, and losing your best friend, he was only 24 at the time, sent me into a bad depression. I ended up gaining weight uh, quite a bit to about 260 pounds. I barely exercised. I was very depressed. Went for mental health counseling, and I did that for quite a while. And basically by March 28, 2000, 2007, I was healthier and accepted his death and by suicide. And a part of me, I used to say, you know what? Sometimes I wish he was killed there. Because if he was killed over there, then I can just say, all right, he died in a war. But because he was the one who killed himself, I couldn't be mad at anyone else but him. And I realized what was hurting me was being mad at him because growing up as best friends, we were never mad at each other. We never fought. Some friends fight, we just never did. And so I found myself being so angry with him. And for me, I think that big healing for me was learning to forgive them for what he did because I was unable to do anything else. I couldn't scream, couldn't yell, nothing. And he couldn't even apologize for the pain he caused because of his suicide. But I know why he did it, because he was hurting PTSD problems in life. And I said, you know what? I think I learned to forgive him. And that's when I started to heal so much. And life went on, law school stuff. And then I attributed so much of my success in life to him. 
And then I always said to myself, you know what? I'm glad I paid tribute to him and all that. But I was like, a part of me could wonder, can I do something physical? Like mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I think I brought myself to a good place of healing, a good place of forgiveness, and a good tribute to him. But I thought to myself, and I don't know, maybe this is the guy me talking. Might be toxic masculinity in me, I don't know. A part of me thought, could we find a way to honor him somehow? What could we do? Should be something physical. Guy thing, I don't know. And I said, you know what? Let's do a race for him. Let's do the Marine Corps Marathon in his name and his honor. And I said, yes. you know what? That's what I'm going to do. Yes. And listen, I'm not, I was in my early 20s when Afghanistan and Iraq happened. Yeah, we all want to bash Bush. I did it too. But I said, you know what? I'm not going to care about the wars at the moment. To me, he was a young Mi'kmaq from a reserve yep. who wanted to do something with his life. Yes. He fought for what he believed in. We can look at it a multitude of ways, but the way he always saw this, he did his part to help liberate the people. Because I always say, let's not pretend Saddam Hussein was an angel. I'll yeah. say that. I'll say that too. And he did his part. He served a full four years, received a dishonorable discharge. And so I'm like, no, I want to do this in memory as a tribute to him. And yeah. while I'm at it, hopefully I can finally finish a marathon in under three hours. <laughs> That's my other goal. And then just a few days ago, a woman, a Mi'kmaq woman who, Catherine Burton, who used to be the former chief of staff to the mayor of Boston. So she's done very well for herself, a Mi'kmaq woman. Wow. Her brother was a Marine as well. His name was Mark Sark, and he was from Lestigush First Nation. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually worked as a band manager for my reserve for a while. He was nearly sober for 30 years. He did very well for himself. He became an artist. I think some of his art is at the law school, actually. Really? Yes, I have to double check. I got to check that out. Yes, I think some of his work is at the law school there. And he passed away November 2019 from cancer. And he was only 56. And so her sister, his sister, Catherine, reached out to me and said, could you run a memory for my brother as well? And I said, yes, I will. And I said, I know I'm running for one Marine from Wagobah. The other one is from Lestigush. But I said, you know what? It's all one Mi'kmaq nation. They're both of the same nation. And I said, I will do it for the both of them. And as a side story I want to share with you and, well, share with the listeners. Yeah. I texted this to a few friends last night. So I took my dog, Lulu, out for a walk at uh, Shimmy Park last night. I don't know about some people. I talk to my dog. Yes. I talk to her oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah, I talk to her out about everything. Yes. Come here. Come. Give me a treat. She's here. Yes. All right. I do want to introduce. She just came up. This is Lulu. <gasps> oh my gosh. She's even cuter than in pictures. Look at her yeah. eyes. It's loving your eyes, baby. Oh, and the fur. Oh my gosh. Yes. Look, Lulu. You say hi to the. Oh my gosh, I love dogs. Mine is sitting right here at my knees, trying to jump up on my knees. So I'm going to have to introduce my... uh, Please do. Whippo. Whippo. My Whippet. And his name is Devo. Devo. Get it? Whip it. Whip it good. Walk, walk. (laughs) Yes, I do. I do like that, by the way. Yeah. So pretty. Say hi. And he's he's only five months old. So he's giant, but he's just a baby. So last (laughs) night, we're walking through Shibby Park. No, I was talking to Lulu. And I said, yeah, daddy was asked to run for someone else in the Marine Corps Marathon this month. And daddy said, I'm very honored and all that. And, you know, I I don't, one thing I don't talk too, too much about when I 
do make my education presentations is I don't talk a whole lot about spirituality. I'm an agnostic person. I don't know what's real or not. I don't know what's here or not in the afterlife. I don't know. Could be something, could be nothing, could be anything. I always said, though, I believe in miracles. And I know, I do believe in good signs. And for me, I know some Mi'kmaq people don't like. I do love owls. I think owls are beautiful birds. And Gugu comes from Gugugues, which is Mi'kmaq for owl, my last name. And last night we were walking through Shiggy Park and I was talking to Lulu just about the upcoming race there. And uh, for the first time ever in my life, I saw a Gugugues. I saw an owl in the wild. The only ever time I ever saw an owl was always in captivity, ever. I've never seen an owl in my life out in the wild. And, yo, know, and it's funny because just right before I saw the owl, and I took some beautiful pictures of it. I can send one if you like. Right before I saw the owl, I was just talking to Lulu, you know, about Clint and Mark and Weiwa and Lestugush. Yeah, a part of me just wondered to myself if this was a message from the other side. If it's maybe it's a sign or of some sorts from them that in this life, we always talk about people who are gone and how much we love them and remember them and how much we miss them. And I guess I never thought to ask the question too much. The people who are gone, are they talking about us? And if so, like, how do they send messages to us that they are thinking of us on their side? Yeah. It's something I just... I'll play with. Like I said, I'm an agnostic person, so who knows? But at the same time, could you be agnostic and still believe in miracles at the same time? Yeah. I think I could. So That's so beautiful. Honestly, that's so beautiful. I remember it was, I don't know, years ago during the I Don't Know More movement, and I had gone to Member 2, and I was doing like presentations to the community on what we can do, how we can join together and stuff. And Duma Young showed up. And he presented me with a gift that he said wasn't from him. It was from his mother. And it was a snowy owl wing. And I was just like, where, where did this come from? I've never met Duma Young's mother. And so I didn't know, what is this all about? And he said that she said that she'd been watching me and she considers me a leader and strong and a warrior and... This, this snowy owling that she had for a very long time, she was waiting until the right person to give it to. And so ever since then, I've been trying to learn everything I can about Google Gwis. And you know, and so here's this connection. And the interesting thing about that is right before this happened, someone had gone into my bag and stole this eagle fan that an elder had given me a long time ago. And I felt so guilty and I was like mourning it and I felt irresponsible and I felt like lost without it and all the mm -hmm. symbolism. It was literally two days later and I got this owl wing and I thought, okay, is that an ancestor? Is that an ancestor doing that? Are they talking about us? So I just find that really interesting wow. that you have a similar but different kind of experience. Thank you. And I love Thank you for sharing that one as well, too. I get, another one I wanted to share about that, I'm mindful for just over an hour, but I do yeah. want to share another one that's very beautiful. It was at Junior's f funeral and burial. At the time, I, like, I was unemployed. I was going to try to do some freelance work for the Bar Society, but I was without a vehicle. And I was living in the North End in Halifax at the time, and I was on EI. And of course, who was also at the funeral, funeral and the services were Judge Ann Derrick and Archie Kaiser, who 
of course, Judge Andy Arkos, legal counsel for Junior. And I was very happy to know that after the Royal Commission and Derek and Archie Kaiser kept in touch with Junior and the family, like all these decades later. And so I, I asked Archie Nan, can I get right back to Halifax with you? I don't want to take a bus. No one's going to Halifax. Of course I did. But what happened, a very beautiful symbol thought, and I shared this with Anne, and Anne and Archie have openly shared with me. They're both atheists, but I do have a nice story that I did share with her. So at the burial at the cemetery, we were taking, removing like the flower things that were on our jackets, vests, or whatever. And we would place them on top of the casket for Junior before the casket was lowered into the ground. Archie, I think he only removed like the petals on it. He didn't remove the stem. So it got stuck on his suit and he didn't know that. So he tosses it in and we go to the member two train convention center for the holiday afterwards. Then an elder went up to Archie and told Archie, before you leave member two today, you have to go back to the graveyard, give the rest of your flower to Junior. You can't leave here. Late. So, of course, Archie, he profoundly apologized and said, yes, absolutely, we are going to do that. And so when we were ready to leave and head back to Halifax, me and an Archie got in the vehicle, but we went back to the cemetery. And we went to, G- actually went right back to Junior's grave. That was just freshly covered. And a few feet away from it, I stood there with Anne. And then... Archie went walked a few steps further, placed the rest of the flower down, and I won't repeat in detail, but Anne just had a she had a quick moment of reflecting about 20 years ago, the Royal Commission, just being at 1989 and all. And then 20 years later, like now Junior's gone. And on a few months later, when we were doing the memorial award, Anne sent me a side private email. And it was a, a lovely acknowledgement and thanks for just me doing all the running around to get Junior's award off the ground. And I told Anne that when we had to go back to the graveyard so that Archie could place the rest of the flower down for him before we left the community, I told Anne, in a weird way, I think that was that was Junior's way of saying he wanted to see you two one last time before you left. And Anne said, you know what? Wow. That works for me. And wow. Yeah. So I think maybe we can believe whatever. Yeah. I, or We're all something. connected. Yeah. But I still believe in miracles and believe in nice signs. I think that was, and I firmly believe in my heart before Ed and Archie left, Junior just want to say thank you and mm. see you one more time before they left. But again, a very sad and tragic loss. And you find a way to come back around with something nice about it. I feel... I know you'll never toot your own horn because you're a very humble person. For all the listeners and viewers, this is one of the many reasons why I wanted Jarvis to come on here and talk because he is that humble. And do you notice throughout this whole podcast and video, he's been crediting other people for all of the things and the experiences and the influences in his life. And again, he'll never toot his own horn, but this guy is a real lead. He ran the Boston Marathon. I put a little tiny picture up there for people who are watching YouTube, but that's no small feat just physically. First of all, physically, that's phenomenal. The longest I've ever ran in a race was 15K and the last 3K were the most painful moments of my life. But, and as a Mi'kmaq person to run in it. So you think about you're representing Mi'kmaq people, your family, all the people you're running for, but also First Nations in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just... 
these things are so powerful and meaningful. And you don't know how many, say, younger people you've inspired to say, you know what? I'm going to do that too. I'm going to be like Jarvis Gugu and I'm going to run in the Boston Marathon. Or I'm going to be like Jarvis Gugu and I'm going to take steps to learn my language. Even if I never had it in adulthood, I'm going to do that. And so that's what I mean, Jarvis. You inspire people to be better people. You inspire people to be thankful for all of our relations around us. You find a way to take the sad and find the heartfelt, the touching, the way in which we're all connected, the way in which we should be more connected. And you're a gift. And I'm so thankful. I wish I lived closer so that I could be around you more and just absorb it. But when I saw you at Danny's book launch, I was just like, oh, I'm just running over and hugging this guy. I don't, I'm not even going to ask him for his permission. I'm just like, there's Jarvis Google. <laughs> well, on, Dan, that, it really, that really means a lot. So much. And I think it's one of those things that you'll say in Mi'kmaq, in the Mi'kmaq language when they say Ipsit Nogama, which translates to my, all my relations. It's It kind of reminds me of what Dumas said as a presentation he did in the old uh, Aboriginal law in at the law school there at Dow. Yeah. And he said that, uh, and I was in class once and I was audited. This was after I graduated. I was audited in class and he was explaining to a group of non-native students. It's not just about studying Indian Act law as how it applied to Native people. Yeah. It's understanding, knowing we came from a different way of life. Yeah. The colonial system is that. It's colonial. We had our own way. He said something. I've heard this before, but he said that when Jarvis had uh, this law school celebration back home, yeah, some people were congratulating him, but not everyone. Because, guys, remember, people were congratulating his family, the people that raised him. And they would say, you raised a good son. You yes. were there for him. You helped take care of him. Yes. And like, like for me, I don't know my father. I wasn't raised by my mother. I was raised by my grandmother and my aunt oh, and my yeah. family. And within all that, people would congratulate the family. And I think that's always very important to remember. And it's like what you were saying when you presented, introduced Dan last week. Obviously, we know of your work. It's incredible. And then, what you simply did was say, it was Danny who inspired me. And I say, you inspired me. Candy does, Junior, Clint, mm -hmm. so much. And maybe that's what we be when we say in Mi'kmaq, I'm sitting in Okama, all my relations. It's because one yeah. way or another, nations come together. Nations help each other. Yeah. And maybe this is what we're doing today. So it's been a well all in Pam, because not just for me, but for everyone else. And not just for inviting me onto this podcast, because what you're seeing today, this when this interview ends, and when people listen to it, yes. I can only hope that they can do bigger and better things than the both of us put together. Because when that happens, that makes our nation stronger. Yes, most definitely. Oh my gosh, like I had this list of questions for you, and you literally answered every one of them in your stories and your experiences. Even guests, I always ask, and how can we help? And you've already answered that. Contribute to Donald Marshall's award, for example. And that's like the first thing I'm going to do as soon as we're done here. In two minutes, I'm going to do that. And to, to the other institution, and really just to ourselves and one another, and know this this strong theme of everything you talk about, our connections, our relationships, our experiences, our obligations. 
being true to ourselves and allowing us to have our, our own feelings and working through those, the sadness, the loss, the joy, all the people who support us around us. My gosh, I could literally listen to you for another six hours, Jarvis, and I hope you'll come back on. Oh, and, I would love to. I would love yes, to. I'd love yes. to have you back on and just do a health and fitness session just about everything about Mi'kmaq health, Mi'kmaq fitness, our traditions around food and all of that stuff because I just have this huge interest in that. So I'm okay. hoping, I'm putting you on the spot, obviously, because you're oh, on a podcast. Absolutely. Will you come back? Yes, <laughs> but, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And if there's ever anything I can do for you, my friend, I am I am here for you whenever you need. Well, Ben, that means a lot. And thank you again, Walalan, and thank you to all of the listeners and the viewers, if you watch this on YouTube afterwards, for listening to this podcast, having an open mind, hearing what people have to say, and doing what you can to share the knowledge. So you can literally share this podcast. You can put it in your classrooms. When you have a question about something, always hear it from the native voice first. Hear it from the Mi'kmaq if it's about Mi'kmaq people. Hear it from Wollastaquay, Haida, Wet'suwet'en. Like, make sure you're listening to the voices on the issues that are really important. So thank you all. Remember, you can like, share, comment, subscribe, whatever it is that you want. And I will see you next time. Keep living a warrior life. Balaliag.